Wow. When did I know that I needed to send my son to treatment? That's a really good question. I don't think I really realized how far he had gone and how bad it was until I was literally drowning. And it was me that was drowning that I think was the most painful realization because I've been trying to fix him for so long. What was he doing that you were overwhelmed with? What were you reacting to? What was that grand canyon of energetic flow that was drowning you? Yeah, that's such a good question because with my son, he wasn't as deep into drugs as I thought you needed to be for it to be a real problem. What was really going on with him was he was completely out of control in how he was as a human being. He was so self-loathing. He was unable to get up and go to school. He was unable to participate in how the family maneuvered. He would talk back. We had taken the door off of his room. We had taken the phone. We had tried to get him to show up and be part of the family in a way that felt like what we wanted, what was being in a family member. I kept thinking he didn't need to go to treatment because he wasn't a drug addict. He wasn't doing alcohol and drugs in the way that I saw other friends' kids doing it, to be honest. It was really an internal thing in his battle with the black room, with the curtain over the window so that it was dark. The video games, it, it turns out he was a lot more addicted to video games than I had appreciated. And the story that we have in common is that I couldn't afford to send him to rehab. I had hadn't thought of rehab because all I could think of was drugs. And I had a friend who had a friend whose child had gone to your treatment center to Fire Mountain. And that friend came to me and said, I think there's a place that you should take him. But because it was more like that his being was such a mess, I couldn't fathom that there was a center that was right for it because I couldn't pick one thing. And Fire Mountain's not here anymore, but the concept of it, and now I realize it's a larger concept, is the wholeness of a child. And that I realized he needed to find his wholeness again because all of my really poor helicopter fix it for you coping skills that I was using were just actually making him worse. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Reverend Rachel Harrison, who is my guest today, I've known for a long time. I'm going to let her tell the story, but parents, this show is important because I met Rachel on the front end of her family's struggle. And now on the back end of the struggle. We are calling. She's a podcast host. She coaches parents. She is a community leader and a parent support and a parent leader in working with teenagers who are really struggling and working with children and family members who are really struggling. But there's more to her story. And the reason why we have to listen to Rachel's story is because she found out what the problem actually was. And in my mind, in the work that I've been doing for 25 years with families, parents, even when I had their teens living in my program, Rachel is one of what I'm happy to say, many of the parents who figured it out, but Rachel's 
taking it to that, what we like to say in the 12 steps, that 12th step, that taking the message of hope to other people who are still struggling. And now she's giving that lesson back. So thank you for joining us on Beyond Risk and Back. What I always pride Fire Mountain with is what we did with the parents. So back when kiddo was in Fire Mountain, what was going on for you and at that time, your husband? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think that the success that I've had, Aaron, in my spiritual development, my growth comes through not doing it well in the beginning. The truth is I'm an alcoholic. I'm a recovered alcoholic. I am gratefully now six years sober. This was about 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago that my son was in your center. And I had been sober for around three years prior to his coming in. And there was a lot of alcoholic dysfunction in our home. My husband's an alcoholic as well. And when Alex started to, I talk about him in the podcast, so I'm going to use his name. When I started to have issues with him when he was in middle school, if I look now, those came earlier, but so much of it, I think, came from him trying to figure out how to handle his family of origin and seeing how we handled things, seeing how we took care of stress. How did we work with each other? What was going on? We generally look outside and say, you as a kid, you're messing up. You're not going to school. You won't wake up. You won't follow rules. You're disobedient. Alex and his dad just battled against each other. And so by the time we got to Fire Mountain, Rich and I were both drinking again. We were separated. It turns out that part of what was going on with my son was that a kid who really didn't know how to be in the world had an even more broken heart because his broken home was even more broken. And we didn't know how to handle it. Rich wanted to send him to military school. And I knew that that would destroy him. And so in the midst of it, in the midst of saying, what do we do? We had this friend who had a child who had gone to Fire Mountain and had success from that. And my kid wasn't doing drugs, but he was lost. He was lost and there was no getting to him. I kept doing the thing that you do to try to fix, try to manage, try to manipulate, thinking that I could do the one thing that was going to fix him. When we finally did everything that it took and we got him to Fire Mountain and we told him he was in legal trouble, he was in truancy, like he was in trouble. We ended up being told by the courts that they would not go through with the stuff that was going to happen court-wise with him with school if he went to a treatment. And so we had kind of this backup from the back end that said, we are going to do this so that he didn't feel like it was just us. And as a parent, any parent out there, use whatever you can take to get what the next steps are. And so I was so grateful that I could use the court system as a way to help me make this happen. But he didn't have to show up and make it work for him if he didn't want to. And what I love about what happened with my son was he freaked the fuck out at having to go to treatment. I mean, he absolutely freaked out. I think he even ran away. I mean, I, I think that it went, it was not great, but we got in the car and you were going to be doing a camping trip. So not only was he going to show up someplace, but he was going to be dropped off and they were going to go out into the wilderness and we're in the car and we show up. He turns to us and he says, and I'm going to cry thinking about it. He said, 
I'm going to do whatever they ask me to do. And at that moment, I feel like I had hope for him that he might open up a little bit, that he might try to heal because it's really his heart that was broken. I wasn't an addict because everything was fucking great. You know, I was an addict because my heart hurt. And my child was reacting to the world in the same manner in which I had taught him and in the same manner in which human beings respond to pain, which is to find anything to cover up what the pain is. And one of my stories that I shared with you on my podcast as well that I never forget is came back from the camping trip. We've started doing um, the work where we would come up and do family counseling together. And my kid was with you for like six months. You know, it was a long time. And I'm in the hallway in the main room. And I don't think you said this to me. I think you said it to someone else, but I overheard it. And I overheard you say, it's not if they relapse, it's when they relapse. And what happens with that? And I look at myself at how unrecovered I was at that time as a human being and as a parent in particular. And I was so frustrated with that. You know, I thought he's going to show up and he's doing his thing. He had hope. He's participating. He's in it. And I want you to fix him for me. I want somebody to fix him for me. I want this to get better. I want it to stop. I want him to be healed. And I really battled around what that concept was when I first heard it. And now, 10 years later, and everything that I've been through in my, what I call soul recovery, which is learning how to not be a codependent, it started with going to Al-Anon. And it started with this intense work that happened for me. And part of the, what happened was my son did heal in the treatment center. All of the practices, the holistic, the camping, the tough love, the martial arts, the eating well, the fish oil, like the quinoa, you know, the kids still could not eat quinoa, right? But he came out of that and he was awake and he was enlivened and he was aware and he walked back into our home and we were not healed. We were not better. Our systems were exactly the same. We were still pointing the finger at him and saying, you're the problem, and we had not worked on our own shit. We were still drinking. We were still in the same dynamics. And so when did the relapse happen? Wasn't long after, because his heart was still broken. How did he, how did he relapse? What was his relapse project? He quit going to school. He had, he had like, that was a main thing for him. Uh, he couldn't handle sort of what was going on for school and he started smoking weed, which is sort of had been his, his thing. It was a massive checkout. You brought up while you were talking something that parents may or may not have heard. And you said, you said the words family of origin. Talk about what that means. Man, we all are so affected by our family of origin. It doesn't necessarily up to being your father and mother. It's who, what household were you in? Who were your caregivers? Where did you need to survive? How did you learn how to get love or not get love, you know? And our dynamics started 
early on because Rich and I, I think if I look at our systems, how our family systems, we didn't preset and have a good understanding of where, how each person operated and the kids came and we both went at it in our own manners of raising kids and what our values were and how we think we should be with them. And it was very different. And because Rich and I, because we are addicts, to be honest, we didn't work it out well. We didn't figure it out well. So we we fought with each other. So the family of origin can be grandparents. It can be your parents. It can include your brothers and sisters. Where are you developing your sense of self from the very beginning? When was the moment you recognized that this was your work, not his? Like, like is, there a, is there a crash or a rock bottom of your own experience where you were like, ah, crap, it's me? Yeah, it was him not coming out of treatment fixed. <laughs> <laughs> it was that he went and got better and it didn't get better. And it was maybe six months after he had come back from treatment and we were fighting worse than ever. And I had gone to Al-Anon kind of on and off over time, but I had done Al-Anon the same way I did AA the first time, which was really like, I did AA the first time because I really wanted my husband to get sober. I wasn't willing to admit that I was the alcoholic. And when I went to Al-Anon the past, I kind of wanted a Band-Aid. But when I went to Al-Anon this time, Al-Anon has been the profound healing in my life that has now turned into something that I call soul recovery, which is a larger expansion of your, like really who you are and how you can let go of codependency and how you can let go of needing everybody else to be okay for you to be okay. But when I went to Al-Anon this time, I had such desperation because I had this child that I loved so much who was clearly an addict. and. I had to take responsibility for being part of that. And I had to take responsibility for how could I show up in this situation? How could I be better? And I needed to take the attention off of him and everything he was doing and the relationship between him and his dad and find my own healing. And that's where Al-Anon came from, was the wife of AA, Lois Wilson, realized they were off getting better. And she was sitting over here in resentment and frustration. I have a podcast that's around Lois's story. And when we walk into the rooms of 12-step, you have to realize that these rooms were created a long time ago in, a, in an age that was very different. And some of the concepts can be, you know, maybe take what you need and leave the rest. But the general concept when you walk into these rooms is this is about you finding yourself and that their journey is their journey and your journey is your journey. So when I went into Al-Anon this time, what I had this profound awareness was my son needed to want to get better more than I wanted him to get better. And if I gave all of my energy around my being okay if he was okay, that potentially I may never actually be okay. At brabapp.com, I have posted a parenting masterclass. The content is everything I have ever taught a parent in the past 20 years of working with parents in crisis. But here's the deal. It's $99. So please go to brabapp.com, B-R-A-B for Beyond Risk and Back. 
brabapp.com, B-R-A-B-A-P-P.com. Check it out for yourself. Did you feel like you had to give up boundaries or give up your expectations of your son or give up hope and only focus on yourself? Or were you, because this is, this is one of the things I hear about vacating the space you want them to employ, right? They've got to want to get better more than I want them to get better. Does that mean you have to start saying, I don't care if they get better or not. I don't, it doesn't matter if they get better or not. I have to get better because there seems to be a final holdout or resistance to the idea that someone has to hold on to hope for the child because they don't hope for themselves? That's a really good question because I think that's where the gap in being lovingly detached versus detached with, you know, a chainsaw or something like that. Detachment doesn't mean that you don't show up. Detachment doesn't mean that you don't care. Detachment doesn't mean that you're not there to support them. You're letting go of the part of you that actually thinks it's your job. You know, in soul recovery, the first step is to admit we're powerless over everything in the world, which is based on the first step of AA and Al-Anon, which is that we're powerless over the addiction. Well, to truly admit that we're powerless over someone else's addiction can be a really hard thing to let go of. But the truth is we are powerless over them anyway. We're really powerless over what people think or how they behave or how they show up. And I was sick in the sense that I really thought that I could elicit change in somebody purely from my mass determination for that to happen. And while I was so headstrong and hellbent on making it be different for them, I wasn't making myself be able to participate in the situations for my healthiest self. I was so reactive and so afraid and so anxious. And there was reason to be anxious, right? So none of this is detracting away from how incredibly difficult it is to have an adolescent who is off the walls. Off the walls. I look back now and I just think, I don't know how we made it. One day at a time, one day at a time. But I'll tell you what, I was sitting in an Al-Anon meeting and my husband employed my son, which was his way of trying to help him. And they fought every single day. And that fighting made them both go use, right? Because they're both miserable. So then they're both dealing with it in their own way. And I would ache over this. I would lose sleep over this. I would literally in physical pain over the relationship that they had and then the choices that they each made how to handle it. And there was this one moment when I sat in this Al-Anon meeting and I realized halfway through the meeting that I hadn't thought about them, that I hadn't thought about them, that I was in the midst of listening to other people's stories, that I was taking care of myself, that I was learning these lessons and that they were doing their own thing and maybe it was okay, maybe it wasn't okay. And I felt this sense of peace within myself that was new, and I wanted more of it. And so the wild thing about that particular meeting was they had had so much stress, and I came home, and I just felt this new lightness that just said, man, it's theirs to hold. Why am I trying to hold on to their stuff? And I walked in the house, and my husband reported that they'd had a really good day. And I thought, Oh, that's fascinating because 
I was prepared to be okay even if they hadn't. And that journey really is what started for me to more than ever to start this spiritual practice on myself. And the more that I actually loved both of them for exactly who they were and gave that vacuum space, but I was showing up different, things started to evolve and get better for both of them. And then for my son in particular, one of the greatest things that happened in our life was he moved. He's 27 years old now. He was 16 or 17 when he was in the center. He moved to California in a crisis. Now, Aaron, you look at these situations that happen in your life and you're like, I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to make this happen. Like I'm going to, I'm going to buy him a trailer and I'm going to set up his life and he's going to take over his dad's business. And then I can keep my eyes on him and I can make sure everything's good. No, in May of 2020, he had this huge life shift where everything crumbled for him and he was a mess. And he and his dad had this big, huge fight out in the street in front of some client's house, another big, huge fight. And it was enough of a straw that broke his back that he borrowed money, got a one-way ticket to California and has never come back. And it was the greatest thing that ever happened to him because he went out into the world to figure it out for himself. And guess who wasn't all over his shit all the time? It is impossible to map a situation like what you just described. Being a father with two kids who are both married and building their own lives and their own careers and their own families. I never saw what they are going through now from the place we were when they were in crisis or having struggles or even when things were going okay and I was their parent and they were living at home. We can't see where this goes and we think we have to control it because we're afraid of death. We're afraid of our kids dying. So what was it that you did for you that made you not afraid of your kid dying? I appreciate you saying that because that ruled my life for a long time, was my terror that Alex would kill himself. All he needed to do was call me and say that he was that depressed. I would do anything. I would give him any amount of money. I would go rescue him from whatever Similar to that feeling that happened in the Al-Anon meeting, when I really started doing this work, I did the 12 steps through AA, I did the 12 steps through Al-Anon, and having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, which is the 12th step, my spiritual awakening opened a place in me that said, can I trust that this is his path, that this is his journey? Can I trust that whatever happens for him is his, and I can't possibly understand, and that might even mean that he needs to kill himself. And the moment that I actually made that awareness, I actually remember where I was. I was sitting um, at a little tiny lake that's here in Louisville, Colorado, over a sunrise or sunset, probably sunset because I don't stay up early, but I just remember that light on the water and the peace that I felt knowing that the spiritual path for me was the path that was going to give me peace, that I had to hand it over. I had to trust that no matter what his journey was, 
even if it meant that he hurt himself, that that was his to choose. After that day, I was better able to handle what he was saying without doing that clinging, clutching, I'll fix it, I got to make it better, I'll do whatever it takes, and just could be more empathetic and let him hold his own pain in a way that was more beneficial to him. It is incredible to me that this many years later, 50 years now, is it? The single most effective and successful treatment program in the world is free. And that its most effective program for family members is also free. And how hard people resist it, whether it's their value perception or whether it's, you know, someone says, uh, the 12-step programs are just another cult or it's another addiction or whatever the excuses that people have set out in front as obstacles to not have to go do their own work, whatever that is. I'm curious for those who are interested and reluctant Can you talk them through what happens at an Al-Anon meeting so that they have a general idea of, so, okay, I'll go. What's going to happen? So they're not walking in blind, but they're actually going, oh, this is that thing she said. I love that you're asking that because I think stepping in the first time is like the scariest thing. Oh, it's terrifying. And I told you on your podcast, Soul Recovery, about my first time. It was a speaker's meeting, and I assumed they meant me. (laughs) And that's my own ego. But I had no clue what I was in for. And it rocked my first day, rocked my world. I've been to Al-Anon meetings that are three people. I've been to Al-Anon meetings that are, you know, 40 people squeezed into a room trying to find more seats for each other. What I find in Al-Anon meetings that is so profound, and it, and it has a different flavor than than what's in the AA meetings, is This level of acceptance around nobody is any better or any worse than anybody else. We're just here to be able to share. Nobody's trying to fix you. Nobody's trying to tell you what to do. Now you'll have people that do that. But the foundation is that you walk into a room and there are people who have been through what you've been through. And to be able to choose. I mean, there's meetings that are for parents. There's meetings that are for um, specifically for men or for women or for family of origin addiction. There's, you know, you can look in the area and see what you have. There's online meetings everywhere. So the cool thing, you know, in the pandemic was that everybody went online. Well, now you can actually look and pick meetings from anywhere in the country and attend a meeting that's anywhere in the country. If anonymity is really that of a big deal. But every time I walked in, what I ended up feeling was this sense where I could just not have to hold it together. I didn't have to pretend. I didn't have to put on the everybody's fine face. I didn't have to smile and say, oh yeah, my son, no, he's doing great. When really inside I'm dying because I'm afraid he's going to overdose. I'm afraid that he's going to, he lived on the street for a while. My kid was homeless for a while, you know, like I've been through it with him and you could be there and you could say, I had to kick my son out of where he was renting because I was in charge of this renting and he wasn't paying the rent. And now he lives in his car. And have people just shake their head at me and say, and feel it with me and love me. And, you know, Al-Anon has the potential of allowing us to just stop pretending and to look into what's really going on for ourselves. And the main thing that I learned there that has been so powerful for me was to walk through the door where I think my husband and my kids, my oldest son in particular, are my reasons, but I can hand that over 
to something greater than myself. And I also love that AA and Al-Anon don't tell you what that is. People get scared because of the God word, you know, turn God into good, make it be love, make it be joy. You know, it's just a word. And they're just using a word that's an easy word to use. And if they have to try to caveat up with, you know, all kinds of other more smooth, easy terms, it gets really complicated. But they're not trying to proselytize anything. It's just a word for something greater than yourself. And when you can get past that someone's trying to make you believe something and you go, what if there is something greater than myself that will hold my child in this space that I can let it go. What if there is? The experience of reconciling the God part, you know, and they've clarified that through the years in the Big Blue Book and stuff is the God as we understand him. And what the way I heard it in the first two weeks of the room is God is this room for all you care, for all you need right now, God is us and not just you. God is, because all of us together, is way smarter than what you've been doing in your own life. So just stay there for right now. Don't worry about trying to, it'll show up. The answer will show up if you keep coming back, if you keep doing the steps. Does sponsorship work the same way if you're an Al-Anon? Do you get, do you look for a sponsor in the first time or is it just primarily the group the room work? They suggest a sponsor. Um, it definitely isn't pushed as hard as it is in AA to find, you know, in AA, it's like get in there and get a sponsor and start working immediately. And Al-Anon's more, if there's somebody here who inspires you, ask them if they'll help you walk through it. Ask them if they'll show you their way of doing it. And similarly, an Al-Anon sponsorship over in AA, a really healthy sponsor is just offering you what worked for them. They're not there to control or become your keeper. And so you want to allow yourself to really find somebody who resonates and to be able to sit with somebody else who has a husband who's an alcoholic or has a kid who's going through the same stuff you're going through. There's something so relieving around the fact that you are not the only one. We think that we're doing this all by ourselves. I think that's the amazing thing about what Recover Your Souls happened for me. When I first started the podcast um, almost four years ago, I just had my phone and I was just recording the rawness of my own recovery from alcoholism and my rawness of what was going on in my life right then with my kids and my husband, which was really hard at that moment. We were still in it. I was still showing up in Al-Anon meetings, like praying for that moment in the Al-Anon meeting where I could not think about it for that period of time. And from then to now, this continued work of turning the attention to myself, witnessing from compassion, not controlling, not doing for them, has changed my life profoundly. Now, are my husband and my kids better? I think they are. That's my view of them. I don't actually know if they're any different. Maybe they're the same. Maybe it's just me that sees it different. It's interesting. Like, I do think that they're better, but I honestly also can say that I am so profoundly different that regardless of where they're at, I can see that this is their journey and their way of doing it. Now, the difference between Al-Anon and, and soul recovery, the soul recovery community is really 
founded on people who have addicts in their lives or recovering from codependency. I'm not an Al-Anon program. I've taken the foundations of what I learned from that, and I've expanded that into a spiritual path. It is a spiritual path. Again, whatever that is for you, right? But that person that brought their son and dropped him off to you 11 years ago is profoundly changed in who I sit with you here today. And I'm grateful for every step of the way. And my family is profoundly changed in how I see them and witness them. And through that, there's more potential for them to find their own way, but it's their own responsibility to do so. Did your marriage survive recovery? Um, my marriage did survive recovery, which is a miracle. It's and very rare. Continues to be a process, Aaron. Um <laughs> Because my husband still drinks on occasion, which is fascinating because I have these three family members who still use. They all still use. Do they use um, more or less at various times? Yes, but I don't use anymore. But Rich and I, we were separated for a year. And part of that year was when, when Alex was in the treatment center and... um and we did come back together and it has been a journey, but it's another place where I have turned the attention to myself and stopped putting all my energy on if he would be a certain way. And if I wake up one day and it's not working for me and I can't be myself, I'll take a look at that day. Today, that's not the day, but we did make it. And I know that a lot of people don't make it, but we almost lost it over how we dealt with our son. That was our most difficult and unsolvable problem. So when we quit fighting over him, interestingly enough, we quit fighting. Do you believe that unification amongst the parents or parenting partners, divorced exes, whatever the, the situation may be, do you think that unification is mandatory or required? Or is there other routes? Being more on the same team and not fighting each other through it would be the best option. However, one of my biggest things that I thought was that I thought Rich and I had to parent the same. And I, I didn't like the way he parented. I didn't like the way he talked to my son. I didn't like those parts of him. What I realized from my more healed self now that, hap that happened when he came out of treatment, the wheels were still kind of falling off the bus a little bit, was that if I was trying to fix what I thought Rich was doing wrong, I was creating a triangle that wasn't benefiting anybody. And so when we came together with the unification saying, we want a child who is happy, we want a child who's self-sufficient, we want a child who is as healthy as he chooses to be, we want a family that loves each other, that became very different than me wanting him to do that in the means in which I wanted him to do it. You're talking about the victim enabler persecutor triangle. And and we switch the roles that one person's got to be the victim, one's got a person has to enable the situation, and one person has to be the persecutor of the victim. And I remember, and I believe when you were there, a brilliant therapist named Joe Soma, who was our clinical director, and he introduced us and the team to the other triangle, which was the challenger, the coach, and the champion. 
And it, it was a very cool dynamic to say, wait a second, we're in this triangle of who's being the victim and who's enabling and who's being the persecutor. And how about we just reframe this and everybody take a positive strength-based version of this and embrace it. You're the challenger. You're the coach. And you're the champion. You're going to figure this one out. I'm going to coach you. And that person's going to challenge you. And we're going to do it very consciously, on purpose. So much of what we're talking about, what goes on in addiction with families, is not on purpose. It's very much on accident. Recovery's on purpose. And that's what's so hard about recovery is, is that purposeful day by day by day. Slipping back into accidental living is the moment I start using again. And that's, that's very clear to me. What did, what did your relapse look like since, since so much of this began with it's not if you relapse, it's when you relapse? What did yours look like? Well, we had gotten sober for three and a half years and I had done AA and I had sprinkled in some Al-Anon, right? I think that the concept that more will be revealed is so fascinating because still to this day, every day I learn something new about myself. There is something more. And so when I stepped into AA the first time and was doing the sprinkling of Al-Anon, I think I was still really wanting something to get fixed, that some magic thing was going to come in and fix it. And I was looking for the map that was going to give me the answer that was going to make my life look and feel a certain way. And so I did AA got the sponsor and did the steps and went to meetings and an enormous amount of relief came over me and I had an intense amount of healing. It was some really powerful years for me. And I have an enormous amount of gratitude that Alex at that point in our lives had sober parents for a period of time. What's interesting is Rich and I still battled over how to parent Alex because we were not doing the triangle in the right way. We were very much doing it by accident. We were very much doing it from our woundedness. And so ultimately, that intensity got so much, I had to leave. And I also had to save my son. I felt like I had to, Rich used to say, you're going to choose I feel like it's a choice between me and Alex. And I used to say, don't make me choose because I won't choose you. And at that moment, I was just so tired of it. When I left and I took my son with me, I decided that I wasn't an alcoholic. He was the alcoholic, right? Lots of pointing fingers at the other people as being the problem. And it's not that those behaviors or those things aren't actually happening. But when you're looking for somebody to be the problem, you're looking for someone else to be the problem instead of looking at how can I just be in this situation as it is for my fullest self? And how can I recognize that life is fucking hard? You know, it is hard to be a human being. So I left. And in the midst of that, I started drinking again, thinking that I could handle it. And it was not very long until I was back to daily drinking again. And that was my way of handling the stress of what was going on in my life as I'm watching my child handle his stress in the only way that he knew how. So I was modeling for him the same behaviors that I was pissed at. I, I look at how much of my life I've been pissed and upset with somebody else for the same way that I'm acting. I wanted Rich to treat Alex differently, and in the midst of it, I'm treating Rich poorly. I wanted them to change how they were dealing with stress, and yet I'm dealing with stress in a poor way. And it's all our cover for pain. 
So when I started to look at my pain and my core issues, I found that peace that I found in that Al-Anon meeting, that I could just love everybody that's involved and stop trying to find some perfect happily ever after and just say, what do we, what do we have today? What's going on today and how can we best solve it? Do you run Al-Anon meetings? Like, do you show up? Are you an organizer? Do you go to the big events or do you just sit in the chair, drink a cup of coffee, eat a cookie and share your peace still? I just show up. I am so involved on a spiritual level in my own life. This has become my entire being. Um, I actually don't go to Al-Anon meetings as much as I used to because it's morphed into this other way of being. I think that you get what you need from what you need and then you move forward. I could not have recovered without AA. I could have not gotten sober without the container that it held for me. I don't go to meetings now because I don't feel like I need to drink. I don't feel like I have that same thing. If if there's a part of me that starts to think, oh, you could drink again. Oh, I will show up to a meeting. And then soul recovery has become a, a larger expanse of what Al-Anon was the foundation for me around truly letting go of control. Can you stop trying to control and manage and manipulate your world? Can you let it go? And this is my foundational work. And through that, now I have a son who lives in California, who didn't graduate from high school, who has a job doing art, which is what he always loved to do. Does he still party sometimes? Absolutely. Did I just see a picture of a bong on his table? I sure did. We're coming into the holidays. You know, we're walking into this, you know, opportunity for us all to be together. Will I have some feelings that come up of wanting it to be a certain way? I absolutely will. But I can handle it in a way that I couldn't have thought possible 11 years ago. I would not have recognized the person that can just be present with my family in the way that I do now. And that is from doing the work on myself. I love the the name soul recovery because it, it has so many innuendos to it, you know, that you're recovering your soul, that this is about your recovery solely and on and on and on. So let's make sure all the listeners know where to go from this show to find you, to follow you, to listen to you, to subscribe you, and to, to share your work with others. What, where do they go? Where do you want them to start? Yeah, start with the with the website, which is recoveryoursoul.net. And what I love about when this came through to me, it's recovery, it's yours, it's recover our soul. It it all comes together that we're really here to embrace recovery from its deepest level, which is really to find ourselves. And the podcast Recover Your Soul is on all streaming platforms. And I have a once a month free support group on Zoom. It's the first Monday of every month. It is predominantly people who have addicts in their lives. My space that I have a lot of traction on is really around people who have addicts who are young adults, uh, because that's what I have now is my boys are now young adults. And I speak very freely and openly about my relationship with them and, and continuing to still work with them. 
and a husband who's still an addict. This thing is not just us. This is prevalent in the world in such a profound way. And the more that we can come together in in these groups to listen to your podcast and your community, in the Recover Your Soul community, going to Al-Anon meetings, to really be able to deepen our ability to um, realize we're not alone and use all the tools that are available to us to come to ourself, then we can be present for the people in our lives in a way that really allows it to be what it is with the least amount of adding to the crisis. Do you think that calling yourself or calling someone else an addict is a detrimental practice, a label that invokes either victimhood or an excuse to continue to use? That is a fabulous question because as a metaphysical minister, I believe strongly that we are not any label. I believe strongly that we are whole. And the concept around labeling people can really mean that you're attaching to that. I think that you can use words to describe behaviors. I have an addictive personality. Am I an addict? You know, am I going to claim that for myself? I think you have to be cautious about claiming any diagnosis for anyone for anything. Because as soon as you claim it, you're naming it as them, but you can use it as a word, as a terminology, but inside it's what I always say is it's that how you feel on the inside. If you are seeing it and and when you look at somebody and you see them and you're saying, my husband, my kid is an addict and they're sick, you are owning somebody who is an addict and who is sick. If you are saying, I'm witnessing a behavior of addiction and sickness, but you're looking inside and in the inside, you always see wholeness. And for me, I think it is really important. So I'm really glad you brought that up to be able to notice that they're just words in the air, but it never is the who is underneath because we want to embrace people to be their fullest, wholest selves. And may, they may never see it. They may never see it, but we have a responsibility to always hold on to the, to the light. One of the biggest lessons I think I got from Reverend Rachel Harrison during the show is something she said near the end there. If you're looking for someone else to be the problem, you'll find them. But you're going to find them. You will, you will find exactly what you're looking for. That's a prophecy that will continue to be fulfilled until you start to do that self-care work. We talk about it at the end of every single show. To the parents and teachers and clinicians who are listening to this episode, who do the work, who show up and do the work, I say it as a reiteration and a reminder, but the truth of the matter is you're here, you're listening, and you're doing the work. This is the self-care work, getting the support. This is why you need to get your butt to an Al-Anon meeting. This is why you need to add Rachel's podcast to your queue and download those weekly episodes so it shows up and when you're in the car or doing dishes or get the phone call from the principal or whatever and you're on your way to the school you hit play and you just listen because now you're not in survival mode you're you're in your prefrontal cortex again and you're doing your work because 
your work and and that improvement, that mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, financial growth by that inward focus, that's how you do your best work with your kids. You tend to yourself, then you tend to your supportive adult relationships, then you tend to your child. Because you're really tending to them. And the whole time, you've been modeling exactly what you want your kid to do when they grow up, is take care of themselves. Make sure you go to recoveryoursoul.net and sign up for her support group. Remember, it's the first Monday of every month. Parents, take care of yourselves first, your adult relationship second, and your children third. That's how we do our best work with our kids. Massive love and hearts to Deepin Productions for making this podcast sound amazing. And I'll see you next week on Beyond Risk and back.